Hey guys, it's Marianne, dog mom, baker, true crime podcast maker, and I appreciate those listeners who have been sticking with us even though some of our podcasts have been delayed here recently. And just an update, we are five, count them, five podcasts away from some big changes. Yes, we are still crime scenes and cupcakes, and we are slowly transitioning to Killers for Breakfast. Killers for Breakfast is going to be quite a few changes. We are going to start Killers for Breakfast when we start our fifth season. With Killers for Breakfast on Spotify, we will have video podcasts video podcast, you're going to be able to see us recording our podcast and get to see our dogs step into the limelight. Also, there are going to be some other changes, changes with our YouTube channel, and you're going to be able to see some excerpts from our upcoming book. So stay tuned for that. And also, we've been working on not doing a lot of filler discussion. You guys have busy lives and a lot to do, and this information is important. But there is a little other piece of information that I want to discuss that I find also very important. If you follow our social media, you will see that I have been a little active on my discussion about certain other podcasts. I want to make sure that I am looking at other true crime podcasts and recommending other podcasts to our listeners because there are some other great podcasts that do a wonderful job in talking about victims and victims' cases And I can't cover them all, and a lot of other wonderful podcasters can't cover them all. And I want to make sure all victims' cases get covered and get that awareness out there. And as I'm doing it, I have been absolutely shocked by how many podcasts I have come across that are so insensitive that have utilized the term of, well, this is awesome. This is, they are doing, this killer was part of this awesome group of torture. And so you will see me, I am not calling out those specific podcasters, But whenever I do see that, those are podcasts that I will not recommend. And those are podcasts that I have decided not to follow. So I become really frustrated because especially on TikTok, you will see certain comedians or other groups who lump all true crime podcasters into that group. And there are some of us who are not like that. I hope you guys are informing them that there are some of us podcasters who aren't like that. That that is not the way we speak about these cases. And that is not the way we are. And we stand up for the victim 
the victim's family, and our desire and our push is for justice. This is not entertainment by any means. And I love True Crime Declassified when they call it infotainment, or I like to think of it as merely a PSA. We are just trying to inform the public of these cases and working with law enforcement to raise awareness about these cases and to assist them in any way possible to try to reach out to the community and get the information that hopefully they can get to solve these cases. That's the point, that's the purpose. We are back with another installment of our summer series discussing child on child crimes and the concept of psychopathy in children. As we say, when we say children, we mean those 17 years or younger. Now, it's 4th of July, and I hope maybe if you're listening to this podcast, you're being more aware of the children and the children interactions in your groups. Maybe being more aware if there's that child who is blowing up anthills or children who are sticking firecrackers. I'm not kidding you. This is a thing. Children who stick firecrackers in cats behinds. It happens. It's cruel. And it's something to tell you that child might be a psychopath. Not a good idea. So look for those children who might tend to do things that are cruel and cause pain in others. Now, the National Child Alliance has stated that in their review of those who have committed child abuse offenses, 21% of those people who have alleged to have abused a child stated that when they were a child, they also were abusing children. I know we have had trigger warnings at the beginning of our episodes before. However, I feel the need to remind listeners that we are discussing some very dark subject matter. This is child-on-child child crime. It can be very triggering. And in this, I want to remind you guys that there are organizations out there that can provide assistance. If you are experiencing abuse, if you know someone who might be experiencing abuse, exploitation, or neglect, and if you live in the state of Kansas, you can call one 800 9225330 if you or someone you know is experiencing abuse, exploitation, or neglect. This reporting line is available for reporting instances of child or adult issues. Also, if you are hearing impaired, it is equipped with those who might have speech or hearing difficulties. Please don't hesitate to reach out. Also, Nationally, you can text the number 741-741. They are equipped to deal with anyone in any type of crisis. Now, I know the concept of talking about a psychopathic child makes people feel a little uneasy. The two categories seem really difficult to hear in the same breath. Children 
even badly behaving children, are viewed as having some fundamental innocence, whereas psychopaths are seen as fundamentally depraved. They're the ones that are locked up. But neither one of these stereotypes are completely true. Children, just like adults, are capable of undeniable cruelty and violence. I have seen this firsthand. I don't know how many times I can say this to my listeners before you guys actually believe this. And maybe we should start a Patreon where you guys are able to hear these firsthand experiences. We might do a poll, and if you guys are interested in that, it's something we can discuss. And psychopaths, psychopaths aren't always these cruel and violent people all the time. Sometimes there are psychopaths who are functioning at highly accredited jobs. They are not all the ones that are out doing dangerous things. Now, do they care about the next person as much as they care about themselves? Hell no, not at all. But they're not always violent. Now, psychopathy is a disorder characterized in part by a shallow emotional response. It's a lack of empathy, impulsivity, and an increased likelihood for antisocial behavior. Psychopaths are responsible for an inordinate proportion of crime, I will tell you that, and it's all many times committed by their conning, manipulative, interpersonal style, typically as a broad, destructive impact on the individual's life, work, and relationships. A great deal of research suggests that the core features of psychopathy are developmental in nature. It doesn't just happen overnight. With the persistent traits becoming apparent before the age of 10. I want to say this again. Before the age of 10 years old, you can see psychopathic traits in a child. Furthermore, it seems that these traits are predicated by the significant genetic risk factors. This notion has profound implications, not by the least of which suggesting that neurocognitive odd behaviors can hijack the development of our moral sensibilities. It further suggests a basis for the failure of traditional remedial interventions on those with seemingly normal behavioral problems, ranging from conduct disorder in young children to the adult criminal psychopath. Sufficient knowledge of the neurobiological, it correlates to that of psychopathy and has accumulated in such that it informs us of the development of new and better strategies for managing the specific deficits responsible for this altered developmental trajectory. So I don't want to seem like I'm just pointing out and saying, oh my gosh, these are horribly bad children and we need to take them and put them on an island before something bad happens. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is therapies are evolving and they are evolving to assist in this ideology that we can help. 
we can find these individuals, these children who are having these issues. And before they go on and do something horrible, they can be identified. But it takes a village because most of the times parents don't want to recognize it. And so it takes a village to recognize these issues, identify these issues, and get the right type of therapies in place so that this person can go on and live a positively impactful life. The purpose here is to review some of the most current neuropsychological and neuroimaging research and informing our knowledge of psychopathy, noting how this data supports existing neurobiological models for the disorder with particular attention to how this information can better inform treatment and intervention strategies. Again, just what we're saying, it's a way to make it cohesive and put this child on a better trajectory in life. Now, recent findings are of two basic types of psychopaths. There is the primary psychopath and that's the consequence of an intrinsic idiopathic deficit and what we may now consider to be genetic influences. And I love reading this in this study is that, yes, I believe this wholeheartedly. Psychopaths, and this is my belief that I stated earlier in my previous podcast, a psychopath is preformed at genetics nature kicks in later as to how severely the psychopath then goes on to form. But those seedlings have to be placed in at the beginning with genetics. Now, where a secondary psychopath, they're the result of indirect factors such as trauma exposure with the behavioral consequences of each appearing quite similar. So you have them at the beginning with the seedlings, but the primary psychopath, they have the seedlings. A secondary psychopath, they just have the trauma without the seedlings. And they're now known more as the sociopath. Like I've has said earlier, the Charles Mansons in the world. Now, in reference to those deficits, they're predicated by environmental factors such as incompetent parents, impoverished rearing environments. Charles Manson was dressed as a young girl. He was sexually assaulted at a young age. His mother was a prostitute who would bring men home while he was in the room. I mean, there was that man had no chance at life just with what he was being brought into. And those types of things they commit more impulsive reactionary crimes. So that's what you see in more of a psychopath, where a sociopath, that's going to play things a little bit more differently. One of the things that always frustrates me as we discuss this is where lately more and more, I see these news stories where parents or loved ones they attempt to play out a scenario where this is not somebody who had any type of problems in their childhood. 
this is somebody who a really horrific scenario has occurred and it's occurred because that person just snapped right out of the blue. Let's take 32-year-old Chad Doerman, the horrific individual who murdered his three young sons. Now, Doerman's neighbor had done several interviews and he stated hearing horrific, loud, abusive arguments, comments, yelling from coming across the way. But Doerman had no recent domestic violence records we could initially find. And what is interesting to me is Doerman's father had weighed in saying his son was a kind and loving person and he must have just snapped because he was either having financial issues or marital issues and that moment must have just snapped and in that moment he decided to take his son's life. Now again Chad Doerman's father weighed in on this early on in an interview and it has come out later that Doerman had planned this and it was an ongoing theme and what interested me so much is Chad Dorman's father deciding to come in and weigh on this after he hadn't talked to his son in quite some time, especially after this same son had a domestic violence call against him because of his father, because his son had attempted to choke him. Now, that doesn't sound like a pattern of somebody who had just snapped. And when you go to the Facebook, you see Chad Doberman's mother always putting, you know, these wonderful, you know, phrases. It's like the family just refused to acknowledge any of the horrible things, but they wanted to maintain that face to social media and to everyone else that, no, this is a perfect family. Everything's fine. And as much as we want to do that, why are we putting that face on? Why are we trying to make these children seem like they're fine when they're not? All you are doing is continuously telling them, that child, that your behavior is fine. It's not your fault. It's the world around you. It's their fault. It is the other children's fault who is refusing to play with you. It is all of the other adults' faults who are telling you that what you're doing is wrong. So those parents are feeding into the child's behavior and it's creating more of a monster, more of a problem. Sorry, I shouldn't have probably used the term monster, but at times it feels that way. But it creates this and it feeds into this energy and the child's behavior, you watch it escalate. And you watch it worsen because they are seeing no recourse for their actions. And if the child is in any type of therapy at the point of time, therapist or DCF, they are getting their cues from the parents. And if the parents are not giving them the true story, that child could be medicated inappropriately, that child could be receiving his therapies inappropriately. All you're doing is continuously harming the child. The child just needs to be put on the correct trajectory of therapy. That's my point. 
Psychopathy is a developmental disorder. It doesn't emerge out of nowhere into adulthood. All psychopathic adults show signs during adolescence or even in childhood. Now, I'm not saying Chad Doerman is a psychopath. I'm not saying that at all. I am just using the example that many parents do not want to see some of the horrible things that their children are capable of even when it's happening right in front of them or the child is doing it right to the parent. Now, in the case we are discussing today of child-on-child crime, it's a really tough one. Now, most of them are in all the cases. But in this one, what's so tough for me is this killer has now been paroled, as he states in one interview. Before we go any further, I want to take a moment and I want to talk about his victim. His victim was four-year-old Derek Roby, who was close to turning five. Now, Derek Roby was a four-year-old boy who loved t-ball, and every time he would play, he would tell his mom, I'm going to hit a home run just for you. And he was such a sweet little boy who loved vanilla ice cream with sprinkles, and Everybody knew him as sweet and kind and caring, and he was always just wanting to help everyone out. So on August 2nd of 1993, he could see his mom had her hands really full in trying to take care of his baby brother. Derek was supposed to be attending a summer camp right nearby at the park right down the street. His family lived in a small town in Savona, New York, And I know most people, when you hear the words New York, you think of New York City. But that's not the way all of New York is. There are so many places, hidden beauties and gems in New York that are just beautiful, grass-fed small towns. And that was Savona, New York. Derek was, as I'd said, almost five years old at the time. And he told his mom, you know what? It's okay. I can go right down the street by myself. It's no problem. The kids are all going to be playing down the street. It's 1993, so his mom's like, you know, I'm sure it's going to be safe. And even though this is the very first time, she allowed him to go walk down the street by himself. She packs his lunch with love, and off he goes. She makes sure she gets a big kiss, and he tells her he loves her. And you would think he's going to be safe because she had taught him to stay away from bad adults. She taught him about stranger danger. But let me ask you, do you ever teach your kids to stay away from other kids? Do you ever warn them about that? I know in 1993, that was almost absolutely unheard of. But think about today. Think about your own kids. Have you ever talked to your kids about the other kids? About how another child could be a danger to them? Now, this was the first time Derek was allowed to go off anywhere on his own. And there were no streets to cross. It was on a dead-end street. It was a beautiful park right nearby. It just didn't seem high risk. There were only other children around. And no one would think another child could be or would be the predator. But a short time later, as storm clouds start moving in, 
his mom began feeling something that was just kind of close to panic. It's that mother's intuition, that, that connection we all have to our children. So she runs to the park to pick up Derek, and she was told that he had never arrived. So she arrives, and the small town does what a small town does. Police and search parties are pulled together in minutes. And five hours later, searchers find Derek's small body. It's in a patch of woods just a few yards from the park and a few hundred yards from his own front door. Derek had been choked and beaten to death with rocks. Now, this killing was so vicious, townspeople of Savona believed that there must be a stranger. It had to be a stranger. There's no way anyone from the town of Savona would do this. So, in their mind, there is a stranger from out of town, and they are targeting their own children. So, police get on it, and they start looking everywhere. As police begin investigating the crime, they realize evidence is showing that Derek must have been lured from the sidewalk. And when he was first lured from the sidewalk, that's when they get their first piece as going through everything. And they realize he was lured from the sidewalk and then he was strangled. Okay. Lured from the sidewalk and strangled, but it didn't end there. That's when the killer decided to dig up some of the rocks that were around the area. And then they took those rocks and they began smashing and battering Derek with those rocks. So they weren't done when they strangled him. They wanted to continue to inflict pain. But again, they don't stop there. They then go into Derek's lunch bag and they find a banana and they smash this banana. I mean, they don't just like, oh, toss it aside. I mean, they enact cruelty on a banana. And it's bizarre. And then the killer takes Derek's red Kool-Aid. And he actually pours that Kool-Aid into the wounds that have been made all over Derek's tiny little body by the large rocks. So he's just torturing this poor child and he just can't leave the body alone. He just, he wants to stay and inflict pain on this poor child. And so you'd think, okay, you know what? You've strangled him. You've smashed him. You've just subjected such cruelty. You should be done by now, right? But he's not. At that point, the killer then sodomizes Derek with a small stick he had found. Okay, that is just one of the lowest things. Okay, please be done. But this killer still wanted to spend time with Derek Roby's body. Derek Roby's killer then staged his body. The left sneaker had been removed and was laying near Derek's right hand. And his right sneaker had been removed and was laying near Derek's left hand. So the police were just looking at this and trying to understand what type of person 
what type of an adult would do this? It just didn't make sense. But it was their job to try to figure out who would do this type of crime. And they're asking everybody. They are asking for help from anyone and everyone. And there's one child in the neighborhood. He does start acting off after the crime occurs. And his family notice. And his neighbors notice. In fact, he starts spending a lot of time with one of the neighbors because he's so traumatized by what has occurred. And then four days after Derek's murder, this same child, 13-year-old Eric Smith, Eric Smith with the bright red hair and freckles and glasses and just looking like he is aiming to please. He walks into the police command center with his father to see if he could be of help. He wants to help solve a crime. And we oftentimes discuss killers insinuating themselves into cases, right? I mean, that happens a lot with killers. But how often does it happen with a 13-year-old killer? Just couldn't seem, he wanted more time with that. As much time as he spent with Derek's body, it wasn't enough. He still wants to be as close to the investigation as possible. So the detectives and the other investigators, they sit Eric down, having no idea it was the killer sitting right in front of them. And they started getting an inkling. Oh my gosh, okay. The way this kid's behaving is just really odd. So we think that he must have seen the killer. That's what happened. That's why Derek is behaving a little off and not really acting like a normal child would. He's in shock. He saw the person who attacked Derek Roby, and he's holding on to that. And that's why he's behaving the way he is. But one of the detectives kind of thinks it's odd that Eric Smith almost acts like he's enjoying being the center of attention. He's kind of enjoying playing cops and robbers. He seems to kind of enjoy this. And as they start the interview, investigators are doing what they do. They're asking for information. They're asking, you know, what, where were you? What is going on? What was happening? And all of that information. And here's something you all should know. Psychopaths, they lack emotional experience. That's one thing that they lack. They take their cues from the person they are talking to. They lack emotional experience, but they are very good at reading what you are giving back to them. So if you notice the person you're talking to, all of a sudden their emotions change out of the blue or that they are feeding back into you emotionally, but it seems to be a big change or a big course of action, you might just be dealing with a psychopath. Eric Smith is talking about what happened and again he's lacking that emotional experience and he's explaining everything and he's telling them where he was and the officers are saying well how did you see this from where you were 
we're, we're not getting that because from where you were, we don't get how you were able to see Derek. And that's when he says, okay, actually I wasn't there. I was actually right across the street from the open field. And the investigators sit up a little bit taller and they allow themselves to physically react. And they're like, wow, this kid was right on top of the crime scene. He definitely had to have seen something. He saw somebody. Well, Eric Smith, I mean, he's, if he's a psychopath, he knows the officers have something. He doesn't know what they have, but they've just changed the way they're sitting. They've changed the way they're reacting. Something is odd here. So he starts behaving differently. He starts acting very excited. He starts changing his cues and the officers find it odd that they see Eric begin like almost vibrating and becoming excited in his speaking. And you just see this way that he is talking and explaining. It's like he is pantomiming feelings. Now, as psychopaths get older, these feelings and everything, they begin to strengthen and they can learn and they begin to cyclic these behaviors much better. Now, Eric Smith, again, as we said, he's becoming a little bit more excited, a little bit more animated in what he is telling investigators. And Eric Smith tells investigators what Derek Roby was exactly wearing. And he starts describing the one piece he was obsessed with. And it was that lunch bag, that lunch bag Derek Roby was carrying. And I'm convinced Eric Smith was a little obsessed with Derek Roby's lunch bag. And I think that is what drove Eric Smith because Eric Smith tells investigators that that lunch bag was kind of cool. And he, he goes on about this lunch bag in this interrogation, but then in the middle of it, suddenly he's overcome and he stops and he asks investigators if they think he's the killer. And I almost feel like he was losing himself in discussing the lunch bag and losing that mask of, I had nothing to do with it and realizes, holy shit, did I give myself away? And at some point he asks his father to bring him a drink and his dad brings him in a glass of red Kool-Aid. And Eric is just looking at this glass of Kool-Aid, you know, because that red Kool-Aid was at the crime scene, not the exact red Kool-Aid, but it was red Kool-Aid that Eric had poured into Derek Roby's wounds. Is going to get a sip, a little bit spills on Eric Smith's hands and he throws the glass. And then he becomes even more excited and begins pacing about the room. So investigators still they know something is off and they're coming to the theory. Okay. We think Eric is just overwhelmed by what he saw that day. And they're working with the theory that let's get him to the crime scene and let's have him replay the events that happened to him. And there is some great crime scene footage from 48 hours. 
and it shows how much Eric was truly enjoying himself being in the spotlight. At the scene where a four-year-old just a short time earlier had been strangled, tortured, sodomized, and is dead. I don't think a normal young child would be in an excited state, but Derek or Eric was in an excited state. And a lot of times psychopaths become very excited when replaying the crimes of what has occurred. Eric comes to the crime scene the next day and he decides to replay the events with the police officers and the police officers are doing this to push Eric to expose who is he protecting? I mean, even the family is thinking he's protecting somebody and even the neighbors. So Eric is spending a lot of time with the neighbors as well. And the neighbors that he's staying with, they know something is off about Eric. And they had heard the rumor about the banana. And when they had heard that, they were like, okay, we think this kid may have had something to do with it. And so one of the neighbors to try out the theory because she's thinking, okay, there is something wrong with Eric. And so she wanted to try the theory if Eric had something to do with the crime itself. She doesn't think Eric saw something bad. She thinks Eric had something to do with it. So what she thought, talking to one of the other neighbors, is they decided to get a bunch of Sundays. And they put some bananas in the Sundays. And then, of course, they put a bunch of bananas in Eric's Sunday. And, of course, Eric freaked out. But then you go back to, is Eric freaking out because of hearing what happened to Derek? Or is Eric freaking out because he had something to do with the crime? So you go back and forth with that as well. But it's pretty bad if even your neighbors are thinking that you're the killer of a four-year-old child. So going on a tangent there. But so the neighbors are thinking Eric is the killer. Family is definitely thinking something is up with Eric. He is not acting normally. The police are thinking Eric is either protecting something or somebody, but everybody is knowing that this child is not behaving normally. And so, you know, the family is going to him and saying, and his grandfather is just the sweetest, most kindest person. And just tell him, look, you can tell us anything. Just tell us what happened. But that's when Eric tells him, you know, that it wasn't some bad person he's protecting. He tells him that he did it. He's the one that killed that little boy. And, you know, you can just imagine how this family has to feel. And, you know, it, it's just absolutely horrific. And, you know, the, the one thing that I do want to say, though, is 
They didn't, though, try to hide Eric out. They didn't try to cover it up as they did immediately. I mean, his grandfather and everybody, they, they went to the police. They did, you know, do what they could. But, of course, they also tried to find the reason. I mean, everybody tries to, you know, there, it, it can't have been, Eric cannot be a evil or bad child. I mean, when you look at this 13-year-old child, he's a red-headed, freckle-faced little boy, you know, with glasses. And, I mean, there were all sorts of reasons that were brought out. I mean, as a child, Eric threw temper tantrums. He banged his head on the floor. He had speech problems. But here's one thing that just really stuck out to me. He would speak to his parents about his desires to hurt someone. This takes us back to the Alyssa Bustamante case. This takes us back to some other situations I talked to you about in our first podcast. If a child is telling an adult that they have a desire to hurt another child or anyone, there needs to be true interventions done. And in this case, Eric would go to his parents and tell them he was having the urge to inflict pain on another human being. And he was going to them, his stepfather, his father, his mother, he was telling them he wanted to hurt someone. And their resolution to it was to tell him to go and punch a bag of corn and that he needed to punch a bag of corn until he was too tired to stand up. And once he did that, he would be fine. That is not the appropriate intervention. Let me just tell all of y'all that is not the way to handle a situation. And you have to think where would Derek Roby be today if there would have been more appropriate interventions done for Eric Smith? Now, Eric Smith was diagnosed at trial with episodic rage initially. And it was also said that it was the epileptic medication his mother was on during pregnancy. It was said it was because he had low set ears. There was a lot of reasoning as to why Eric killed Derek. It was because he was bullied at school um, and took his anger out on Derek. There was a lot of different reasons. But there was one thing that stood out to me that I want to talk about. as a more tangible piece of evidence. Eric Smith's sister was sexually abused by her stepfather. Now, I do question, and I have tried to find repeatedly, and Eric was questioned repeatedly as to whether or not he was ever sexually abused. Now, Eric denies it. Eric denies with everything within him that he has ever been sexually abused. If he wasn't abused, that does not mean trauma didn't occur to him. If he was in the home at the time the abuse was occurring, 
either if he witnessed it or just having the knowledge that those events were occurring in the home to his sister as a child, that can be really traumatic, especially if he never received any type of care, help, any type of mental health treatment. That can be quite traumatic. That does not excuse murder. But when he had gone to his parents with the desire to hurt someone, and that does put some burden on the parents to reach out and find Eric the help he needed. And instead, it was suggested that he go punch bags of corn until he was too tired to harm another person. I, I do believe that there is some burden on the parents to have gotten Eric the help he needed to receive. But again, let me advise listeners, this is not the recommended by any reputable psychologist, psychiatrist, don't go punch corn. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of harming another individual, please reach out to 741-741. It's a crisis text line to assist with any crisis. It's anonymous and they can connect you to a qualified crisis counselor. But Eric, he did more than lash out. He strangled and beat a child with rocks. Then he poured Kool-Aid into that child's wounds. And then he sodomized him with a stick. Then, after all of this, it wasn't enough. He still spent time with Derek's little body staging a scene. Why? The explosive anger should have been spent. Why spend the time staging the scene? Why ask his father to take him to the police station four days after the murder to still feel close to the horrendous deed he had done? Most of us with normal emotions would want to distance ourselves from such a horrendous act. He wanted to still be closer to it, to relive it. We teach our kids every day to be wary of strangers or adults. The schools have presentations and posters regarding stranger danger or cyberbullying. While these are definitive problems in today's society, we encourage our children to always be nice and play with other children. I want to advise parents that if there is that neighborhood family that you might notice that has poor monitoring and supervision of their children by parents, those families that might have harsh, lax, or inconsistent parental disciplinary practices, those parents with a low level of attachment between parents and children or a low parental involvement in children's activities. This is not saying that they're completely bad parents. It's just saying you might just want to be a little more aware of those children and parental dynamics. And if your child is saying that they're having a problem with those children,
Just be a little bit more aware of your child's interaction with them. If the child or the children in those families are might have involvements in crimes or known of involving in crimes off and on, are frequently involved or in the middle of a lot of issues or problems noted in the neighborhood, are involved in frequent fights, arguments, explosive anger, or yelling, if you notice your child shying away from wanting to be around these children or individuals, please don't force an interaction between your child and them. Don't tell them they need to include them to be nice. Youth violence is a global public health problem. It includes a range of acts from bullying to physical fighting to more severe sexual and physical assault to even homicide. For every young person killed by violence, more sustain injuries that require hospital treatment, firearm attacks, and more often in fatal injuries than assaults that involve fists, feet, knives, and blunt objects. In New York in 2021, a seven-year-old boy was arrested for rape. It's unfortunate, but these crimes do happen with juveniles. When a psychopathic killer is asked about the motivations for his crimes, he will launch into a graphic description of the act. The accounts are often animated, but dispassionate. Oftentimes, it's like someone replaying what occurred on last night's TV program. The psychopath takes their behavioral cues from the listener because they lack the emotion to understand how to correctly feel emotion. When they see disgust, alarm, or any real unfavorable reaction from the listener, that's when they know they need to change tack or show remorse for the crime and empathy for the victim. But their words fall flat. It's like they are reciting a rehearsed Starbucks order, like we had talked about in last week's case of Alyssa Bustamante, when she was explaining her crime against Elizabeth Olton. So the psychopath utilizes listeners' reactions as cue cards to understand how to change their responses and behavior. Not true behavior, just acceptable behavior to get what they want. Next up, you will be hearing a few snippets of Eric Smith as he faces the parole board year after year. And I want you to listen to how his speech evolves. He takes his cue from the board. He starts to understand what they want for him to be able to get parole. Now, as I had said in the earlier podcast, a lot of times psychopaths will join groups, become part of a greater community because they know that's what they need to do 
in order to get out of prison. Again, this is in Robert Hare's book, Without Conscience, when he was working in the prison system. And I want you to hear that in Eric Smith as he is talking to the parole board. This can be at one point enlightening, but at another point, really frightening. But I want you to give it a listen. I did kill Eric. And for that, you know, I am sorry. And there's nothing I can do to bring him back. I mean, if I could switch places with him and take the grave for him to live, I'd do it in a second. To be out in society. The only thing that I can say to him is, I'm not the same person. There's not a day that goes by in some way, shape, or form that I'm like forced to remember what I did. I'm automatically thinking I killed Derek mm -hmm. and the pain that I caused Dale Dory Motor. This is Eric Smith in 2009, just months before his fifth parole hearing. My anger wasn't directed at Derek at all. It was directed at all the other guys who used to pick on me. And when I was torturing and killing Derek, that was what I saw in my head. Eric Smith is now on parole and he has rejoined society. It's a big gamble. And you have to hope it's not a big mistake. Married, raised a family. He also said he wanted to counsel kids who've been bullied, just like he had been. So as you listened to Eric Smith's intonations, I hope you picked up on the very flat A fact that he had. He didn't have a lot of emotional cues that you would notice most of us have, especially when he talked about changing places with Derek Roby. A lot of us might have had a little bit more of an emotional impact in that statement. He said it basically as if he was reading an order. I just want you to remember that when you are having discussions with someone else and something else just doesn't feel right. And also remember, I these podcasts aren't here. We're not having these discussions to help you diagnose whether or not your child is a psychopath or if someone you know is a psychopath. That's not why we're here. If you think your child might have some mental health issues or someone you know, you need to get them professional help. Or if it's someone you know or someone you're in a relationship with and you might notice some of these danger signs, please get out if you can or get them help or call a crisis line for yourself and your family. I started this podcast series for parents to understand that the dangers our children have out there are more than just the boogeyman. The online predators that are trying to groom your child, the woman who recently posed as a CPS worker in Ohio, who, I mean, 
this person just blew my mind. She boldly went to the child's house and tried to get the child to leave with her. The family had cameras in front of their house. She had a fake badge and everything and tried to abduct the child. But there are other dangers that can lie in other children. But we don't want to teach our children that there's danger everywhere they go. We want our children to enjoy the innocence of childhood. But we also want them to be aware of what else is out there. We want them to be able to protect themselves. So what do we do? We have to educate ourselves as parents, as well as educating our children. We also have to learn to trust that inner instinct, as well as our intuition. According to Albert Einstein, the only real valuable thing is our intuition. And there are so many true crime cases that I have come across personally or that I have listened to where I hear so many people say, if I had only listened to that voice in the back of my head, that thing in my gut, if I had only listened to my intuition. Now, science isn't clear on where that intuition comes from, but it is considered a way that our brains gather and store information that then taps into stored data to provide flashes of pertinent knowledge. And we can't ignore that. It's there for a reason. It's not this otherworldly mythical thing. It is a scientific piece of us. And it is warning us of something for a reason. But back to Eric Smith, who is now living in Queens, New York. The courts thought living in Queens would be better than returning him to Savona, New York, where they have erected a statue of Derek Roby. Eric is engaged to be married. In fact, he was engaged before he ever got out of prison. And he says he wants to help other children. He wants to help the other children who have been bullied. He feels that God was calling on him to do ministry and that while incarcerated, he was working on getting his college degree in crusade evangelism. Kind of reminds me of Pat Roberts, but we can go on from there. He was also looking forward to working in electrical installation or carpentry. Again, I hope this wasn't a bad move on the courts, but I want to put out this podcast so everybody doesn't just forget about Eric Smith. I want everyone to remember what Eric Smith looks like because we can't forget who he is and what he has done just in case he decides to do it again.
Because who knows? What will be the next thing that makes Eric Smith feel bullied? Who will he take that anger out on? Will he and his fiance decide to have children? Will he take it out on his own children? We want to give him a second chance, but we also want to protect those from this occurrence from ever happening again. We want to have the option to step in before violence erupts again. We have seen too many times where systems have failed. Which is why we even talk in our last series about other systems that have failed and active violence that is going on close to home. And nothing has occurred to protect children who are worried about harm close to home today. Now, Derek Roby's family, they've decided to move on as well. However, no matter what they are doing, on August 2nd, they all stop and take some time to enjoy vanilla ice cream with sprinkles, just as Derek would. And you know, on August 2nd, I think I'm going to hug my little girl sprinkles just a little tighter this year. And I hope all of you will take this information to light and the next time your child says that there's another child that they don't feel comfortable with, you let them know it's okay. If they don't want to play with that child, just sit down and listen to them. Ask them the pertinent questions. What about that child is making them uncomfortable? Ask them the questions before you tell them that they just immediately need to do the right thing. I hope you guys have a safe 4th of July. We have many more podcasts that are coming out this weekend. Have a safe one.